Hi, I'm George Bailey. My wife, Christina, and I have four children. We started this podcast, Choose the Nickel, in an effort to learn how to raise our children to be financially and professionally successful adults. We seek out fascinating people and ask them about their own childhood so that we can learn from them. Our next episode features Maxine Clark, founder and former chief executive officer of Build-A-Bear Workshop. Maxine founded Build-A-Bear in 1997, and now there are more than 400 Build-A-Bear Workshop stores worldwide, and over 175 million stuffed animals have been sold. For a more extensive bio, please go to our website at www.choosethenickel.com. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Maxine Clark, welcome to Choose the Nickel. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So I have to tell you that I actually have my first memory of Build-A-Bear back in about 1997 when I was in Utah and my older sister just raved about this store. Like I really remember it. It was like one of those, where were you when you first heard about Build-A-Bear <laughs> moments? So I'm mm-hmm. excited to have you on the show. Last week, I was in New York, and I walked by one of your Build-A-Bear stores there. And I noticed, of course, that you have the hearts that children place in their bears, or just kind of a way of adopting the bear. Tell us a little bit about that and what you think it means for kids to be able to put their heart in the bear. All of us have seen children through the years, way before Build-A-Bear, hug their stuffed animal. I mean, if they lost it, parents go into a panic because that bear is a right hand or a left hand. It's a part of their body. And there's a special love there that children have for something soft and cuddly. It starts to smell like them or, you know, it just is one of those sensations you can't actually describe. I don't think it's definable in in Webster's Dictionary for sure. And I think that we captured that feeling for Build-A-Bear when you make your own stuffed animal. It's different than the bear you have at home that you might have been sleeping with since you were a baby. But how do you make it into that very best friend, that one that loves you, that unconditional love? I mean, that teddy bears definitely have unconditional love. And we found that that um, really made a huge difference. And honestly, I didn't think of that idea. It was really a friend of mine who was an artist and she saw the bears one day at a summer before we opened and she said, oh my gosh, these bears are so adorable. They need to have a heart. And she kind of sketched a few hearts for me. And I immediately said, that's a brilliant idea. We went and did it. But I didn't understand really how meaningful that would even be because early on, maybe two weeks into our store opening in St. Louis, we had a young man who we hired who was a part-time worker for us. He was a teacher full-time and worked for us part-time. And he had this idea to turn the putting of the heart in the bear into a ceremony. And he made it so meaningful that if there was two parents and two children and two grandparents, that each one of them could put a heart in their in the bear of the child. Yeah. They made it into something really special. And before you know it, we ran out of hearts. We didn't buy enough. And we bought many per animal. But we didn't realize how important that ceremony was going to be or how much the party you were with would want to participate and put their heart in your bear. And so the story began that day when Jeff started doing that. And it's been a technique ever since. And stores have personalized it based on the children that they're working with. Sometimes they have children in wheelchairs and sometimes they have grandparents and sometimes they have a fiance who wants to record, will you marry me for his girlfriend to ask her to marry? We have all kinds of wonderful stories and they all come back to that heart that a teddy bear or a pussycat or a bunny rabbit or anything has a a certain feeling for that child or that person that goes beyond definition. It's so weird because when I think about my first stuffed animal, I know, I'm pretty sure I had a bear and I, I know I had some stuffed bears for sure, but I'm not sure which the first one was. But you really do have those great feelings towards that animal. And a matter of fact, one of my teddy bears survived childhood 
and mm-hmm. my kids still play with it. Do you remember your first teddy bear or whatever it would have been? Oh, absolutely. My bear was very creatively named Teddy. And he was my best friend. And I was a really avid reader. I couldn't wait to come home from school and go get my whatever the book I was reading and sit in my bed with my teddy bear, my dog, my cocker spaniel was at my feet and my teddy bear was in my hand while I was reading. I used to suck my thumb and read. It was like sort of a very peaceful <laughs> place to be. And my, yeah. my, I didn't know it at the time, but when I was 10 years old, we were out to dinner and I always took my teddy bear wherever I went and I left him in the car. When I came out, he was gone. <gasps> I kind of suspected that my dad might have done something with him, but I wasn't really sure. But anyway, he was gone and I really missed him. And it was, I did stop sucking my thumb. My dad was right about that, but I never stopped missing him. And I also cared very much about a child losing their stuffed animal. I've seen that in airports and all kinds of things where people leave things behind. So that's another part of our story. If you made a bear, build a bear, there's a piece of a barcode that goes inside the bear. And then when you get to the namey station, you name your bear and you put your address in and it has a barcode, it matches the barcode. And 180 million bears have been put into our system. And we know where those bears, unless you've moved, we know where those bears live. So if the bear's ever lost and it's returned to us, we can return it to you if we have your right address. And we've returned thousands and thousands of bears. We hope no one ever loses their bear, but we know that (laughs) does happen. And my bear, Teddy, started that. But also Katie, who was the inspiration for Build-A-Bear, her bear, George, she took him on vacation in Colorado and she left him on the Avis bus. He made the circle around the airport, you know, dozens and dozens of times before they stopped that bus and found him sitting there up in the seat just all by himself waiting for her to come and get him. So we knew that we had to do something that would make sure that you could find your bear again. Ah, that's so sweet. So in your book, you talk about this really sweet experience of being pampered by your mother. And she's sitting down with you, you making sure that you have no boo-boos, things like that. Tell me a little bit about how that affected you as an adult to have that type of experience with your mom. Well, my mom was a a wonderful person, but she wasn't actually a person who was always doting on you. She actually, you know, inspired me to be independent. I was the oldest. And, you know, I was a, a certain standard was expected of me. But when I catch a cold or I need something, I'm always, I want my mommy. You know, I want that tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwich that she made for me. My husband can do a pretty good job with that, but it's not the same. I've mentioned this to people before. And they say, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm the same exact way. You know, we have that connection that our mother is the one that takes care of us. And those of us who are lucky to have had a mother and to be that close with our mother and have our mother be able to, to take care of us like that. That's something that grows in us. And it's a memory never forgotten. I don't remember. A lot of people do remember this, but I don't remember if my parents ever read to me. I have no recollection whatsoever of my parents reading to me when I was an infant or a small child, but I love reading. And I learned to read when I went to first grade. That's when they taught you to read back then. And ever since then, my teachers and everyone that's inspired me to read, but I don't have that recollection of being helped. But my mother had many, many high standards. She was a community activist and citizen and a civil rights activist. And she set many high standards that are with me to this day. She was also a social worker. Is that right? She was a social worker, but not by like she got a certificate in social work. She did not go to a college. But when she was a young person in World War II, she worked as Eleanor Roosevelt's private traveling secretary, where she got the firsthand training. And because they did so much work, Eleanor Roosevelt did so much work with people who are were disadvantaged and were poor. And those times in the 30s and 40s were different kinds of times than what we live in today. My mother got to see a side of life that she really wanted to help when she got out of that service. And she moved to Miami and she got engaged and started with other women, a school for children with Down syndrome, 
which was then called Mongoloidism. And she really was one of the first schools that were not institutional schools. While it was a, a live-in school, it wasn't like an institution, like a mental institution or anything like that. They believed strongly that children could live a much longer and more productive life that had Down syndrome, even though the, if I remember my mom saying back then that the life expectancy was somewhere around 20 years old. Now it's a lifetime. But that was because children were institutionalized. You know, parents didn't think there was anything you could do to make them productive citizens. And so they sent them off to some institution. And that's not the case at all, as we all see now. And every time I see a, a child out and about with Down syndrome, I think of my mother and how proud she would be to see how the world has changed. What is the most positive way that your mom reinforced you as a person? And do you have any specific stories about things that she told you that really impacted you? I know that you said that she made you independent. Give us some examples. Oh, I have one story that I'll never forget. When I was in the third grade, I think it was around third grade, I had to do a project for school. I had to read a book and I had to write a book report and I had to decorate the cover of the book report. And my mother was incredibly artistic. I read the book. She couldn't read the book. But when I went to her and I said, Mom, would you draw me this? It was The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. Would you draw me a cat? And she says, not my homework. It's yours. I already did my homework. <laughs> yeah. And I remember when I got an A plus on that. I wanted to go and show it to her and go, na 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 but I didn't. You know, like I she would have <laughs> said, See, I told you so, so I didn't do that. I you know, I but she knew I got an A on it, but the fact that I did it myself and I put a lot of heart and soul into it, uh, the teacher recognized it and I got credit and it was a hundred percent my credit. It wasn't her credit. And I never would have known. That's true. I w- I, it was a lesson I learned early. If my mother had done it I, and I got an A, I would have thought it was for my mother, but it was for me. And I thought that was a really important lesson. And she was like that. She didn't go to school to talk to the teachers. She, Unless there was something that she thought was really important. And one thing that was important, and I think it was also around the third grade. I think that's probably the time I have the most memories starting to really stick with me. Maybe I was in the second grade when that project was, and this was the third grade, but my teacher in the third grade was really strict. And I was always a person that had a lot of questions. I always raised my hand. I always was so curious. And she wrote on my report card, that I asked too many questions. That's the only oh, time man. I remember my mother going to school to talk to her about, what do you think a, th- a nine-year-old is supposed to do? You know, my mother was really <laughs> mad about that because that's what kids are supposed to do is ask questions. And I did have a lot of questions and I still do. I'm usually the person in the room that I think it's sort of understood that when you're in a meeting with a lot of adult people, you know, every, you, people can ask a question and maybe you can ask one, but you never can ask two. You know, it's like, yeah, a, yeah. and I, I always have like four because I'm so inspired by the the conversation, especially if it's something I'm learning that I didn't know before. I have a, a lot of questions and, you know, I write them down so I don't ask them all in a row, but I have a vivid imagination and a wildly curious mind. <laughs> so you, you have learned a little bit of restraint as an adult when to let those questions out. That's great. Yeah. It doesn't mean I don't have a question and I usually wait to the end and I'll go up to the the person who's presenting and ask them all, send them an email. We have a lot of ways to communicate now that we didn't have then. So you could carry the conversation on past the immediate meeting. But that's so great that your mom just jumped in and stood up for you that way. I love that. I tend to agree. My opinion, never, ever turn kids down on their questions. You may need to delay them, but give them every sense that they can come to you for answers. What a great example. One other part about that was really interesting in these days, and I say it and some people look at me and they can tell my age, but we had the World Book Encyclopedias and my parents paid for that like on a monthly basis because, you know, they yeah. could never have afforded the whole thing. And when I asked a question about something like, like, tell me about bumblebees, my mother said, go look it up in the World Book. Go look it up. And, you know, you I remember the smell of the pages. I don't know if you've ever seen a World Book. Oh, no, no, no. We have them as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this, the feel of the pages that were really smooth and shiny, opening up the book and the, sometimes the pages would stick together. But I remember that and I, I love doing research. I mean, I actually do love looking things up. You just, it's now it's, you Google it yeah. <laughs> and it's a, a lot easier. But that going to the library, going to our shelf where the yearbooks were and looking it up was really a, actually, again, another sense of accomplishment that you did it yourself, that you can do it yourself, that you can think it through. That And but while you're doing it, you find out five other things you didn't intend to look at, but you're passing those pages. And I think that's all part of the learning experience. What's so crazy about that is I completely remember World Book Encyclopedias. And I remember that my parents invested in a set. I was the youngest of 10. And so oh, you wow. know, my sibs were a little bit older and whatnot. But I remember that they would invest in those. And every year, we would get the yearbook, the update and whatnot. And I loved going to the encyclopedia for answers, probably not as passionately as, as you did. I I think that I was a little bit more uh, hesitant to go out and read my own stuff and whatnot, but what a great investment. Now, another question I've got about you in school, this story that you share in The Bare Necessities of Business is about your first grade teacher, Mrs. Grace and the red pencils. Could you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that? Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful story. Mrs. Grace was this incredible teacher. Of course, my day, you didn't have to go to kindergarten. It wasn't required. And it was either your local community center, your church, or your synagogue. And I did go to kindergarten. But mostly what we learned in kindergarten those days was to get along with people, you know, to, you know, follow some rules and some social graces. And then I went to the first grade and I have my first grade picture so I could count how many kids were in the class. There were 30 kids in our class in those days. You would never have that. And she didn't have a teacher's assistant. So the way they taught you to read is you'd break up into reading groups and she would eventually move you around based on your skill in reading. So if you were really a good reader, you'd be in maybe the group one or two. They never told you, but you were just whatever group she had, or you got to read more by yourself in quiet groups without the teacher teaching you. But Mrs. Grace also taught us everything else, science, math, or whatever else we had to know. And every Friday at 3.15 or so before we got on the bus, she would take her pencil that she used to grade our papers with, her red pencil, the teacher's pencil, and she'd go to the pencil sharpener and one of those old-fashioned pencil sharpeners on the wall that makes that crunchy sound. And we all paid attention because we knew. And she would sharpen it really sharp and she would give it away. It was a surprise at the end of the week to the, not the child that was there every day, not to the most well-behaved child, not to the smartest one in the class, but instead to the student that made the most mistakes that week. That means you got the most marks from her pencil. You wore down her pencil. And so she sharpened it up sharp and gave it to you. And it was the honor in our class to have that. It was like the status symbol in our class was looking in your cigar box where you kept your crayons and glue and scissors. How many red pencils did you have? And I had a lot because I was willing to take a risk and put my hand up. And that's really what she was trying to encourage was us not to be. There's a prize for asking questions, even if you don't always get the answer right. And it taught us in those days, teachers supposedly I read this letter, but I never felt that, that teachers often taught girl children differently than they taught boy children. But I didn't feel that with Mrs. Grace. I don't think I felt that with any teachers, really. I think they all treated us pretty equitably. Maybe it was because I was just pretty aggressive about raising my hand and asking questions, but I didn't always have the right answer. But I was, I did have a lot of red pencils and and I kept doing it because I wasn't afraid of making a mistake. And I think that's something that we have so many kids are afraid to make a mistake. Everybody looks around to see, well, they, does anybody else know the answer? Do I, is this the right answer? Is this not the right answer? And kids are socialized pretty young in maybe the wrong way to set yourself apart in your classroom. And I think that's a mistake. And Mrs. Grace taught us to take a risk. And I'm forever grateful. That was really, I think, the first place I learned to be an entrepreneur, although I didn't even know what that word was. 
because entrepreneurs take risks and make mistakes and pick themselves up and start all over again. And she got me on the right track. Now, in terms of what you are willing to share, what do you think was the biggest mistake you ever made as a child? Hmm. I was pretty perfect. <laughs> um, I'm not sure my Good answer. Have, my, younger, my younger sister would have uh, some comments about that, but <laughs> I always felt pretty responsible. I think one time, I something I'll never forget. It was not a fun experience, but it was in the the time of lots of. I grew up in Miami, and our schools were integrated at a young age. There were lots of people from Cuba coming into Miami and coming to our schools, and I remember seeing a bunch of kids that I thought were pretty cool yeah. making snide remarks about kids other kids. And I still wanted to be in their group. You know, I thought, oh, wow, they're so cool, those kids. And I remember that day that I heard them being mean to another kid that I, I really learned my lesson that that's not cool. You yeah. know, I, before whatever they did was not hurting anybody else. But when I saw that, I realized that that's not a good thing. But I was very anxious to be a part of that group. You know, it was one of those things that you you don't differentiate yet. And then you start to see, and, and I think it was really a great early lesson because when I saw that one of the children crying, one of my uh, fellow students, but it was a younger child at the time, crying. I thought, that's not a good thing. That's a terrible thing. And so it wasn't something that I did wrong, but I know I envied being in that group and being with those kids. And it was a wrong thing to be envying. And so I learned at a young age that maybe I was around 11 or 12 when well, you want to be accepted, you want to be liked, you want to be popular, all those things. But sometimes those kids are doing all the wrong things to get that kind of notoriety. You know, and I wonder how it is that we can deal with that in a healthy manner. Because, you know, on the one hand, I'm kind of sympathetic to kids that really just want to fit in. I see the pitfalls, mm -hmm. I see the troubles, but I kind of feel like, you know what, though, that's such a normal impulse. And I'm not quite sure how we can best approach children who have that temperament, you know, but I do know that guilting them probably is not the most healthy way of dealing with it. I'm glad that you were able to get past that point and recognize pretty fast that that's a, a bad path to go down. What it tell us a little yeah. bit about your father. He was a salesman. My father was a salesman. He was an electrical sales, interior lighting design, and he was an electrician by trade. He learned his craft in the military. His father was an electrician and his brothers were electricians. So sort of a family kind of the way it was in the old days, you know, sometimes what the father did, the children did. But I think my dad was really the tinker. You know, he loved to make things and to get a room that he turned our garage into that was all the latest gadgets. Like you'd sit in his Barco lounger and it would, you'd, on the right hand would be all the controls to turn on the tape recorder, to turn on the television, to turn mm. on the stereo. And that was way before remote control. And he just made it his haven. And when my dad, he died at almost 90, which was 10 years ago, but he was very much into the internet. He was always emailing me. He had, you know, I still have his email, you know, on my phone, I can still send him an email and it's still received. We never closed it down. And I see his phone pop up on wow. my, on my phone. And, you know, I just, my father was just way ahead of his time and all of that technology. He would have loved if he'd been like 30 years younger, he would have been you know, selling computers and computer uh, things instead of just lighting. But my father believed in somewhere over the rainbow, his ship was going to come in. And he was always, you know, looking for that big deal, that rosy place that it's going to, you know, it'll be easy. All this work will be worth it. And then I'll, my ship will come in and life doesn't exactly work like that. So he was, my mother was much more practical, but my dad was a dreamer. The other thing, he was a salesman and he never went on any sales call. And I went with him several times, um, especially in the summertime, I would go with him, that he didn't bring a gift to the people who he was calling on uh, in the lighting showrooms that he was calling on. So whether it was a, a person in the back in the delivery 
or the secretary in the front. He opened up his trunk and he had personalized things that he had bought with them in mind to bring into them. So he was always the favorite salesman. They always got him in for an appointment, even if he came unexpectedly or he came early or he had to be late and he called them and you didn't have cell phones in those days. So you couldn't, you have to stop at a pay phone and make a phone call. My father was always that kind of person that would make sure that he was welcome. And, you know, he made himself welcome by all the little extra things that he did. He never forgot somebody's birthday. And he also was a funny guy. He had a joke. You could give him a subject and he would have a joke for it. And I think people truly looked forward to seeing him because he had that flair for making people comfortable, making people laugh and smile. And they'd be looking forward to him coming, even if it was for that little calendar or that little pen or the little bottle of perfume or, or whatever he had in his trunks. When my father passed away, I brought a lot of those boxes home with me because he still had all these things. He was one of those that subscribed to these premium services. You know, so he had pens with his name on it, rulers <laughs> with his name on it, all kinds of things. Um, I'll come across them and it just makes me smile because my dad was a he was a consummate salesman, and they don't make them like that anymore. What did he think of Build-A-Bear? My dad loved Build-A-Bear. He was really proud of me. He lived in Florida, and I was here in St. Louis. And when we opened our store in uh, Florida, he was really excited to have all of his friends come to our store opening there and to see our store there. He was incredibly proud of it. I don't think my dad had many aspirations for my sister and myself. I mean, girls graduated from high school and got married, didn't much... It was just my generation that was starting to go to college. And my mother wanted us to both have a higher education. But my dad wasn't so high on that. You know, he thought girls should get married. And he was kind of old fashioned that way. Yeah. And, you know, it was just he was more traditional of a dad, but he never discouraged me. He, I think I surprised him all the time in what I was doing. And so he was very supportive. He just I don't think he knew what to think of it. I don't think he knew how to put it in perspective. I don't think he knew how to help me with that. Did your mom and dad ever talk with you explicitly about money or business or anything like that? We didn't have much. So there wasn't much to talk about, but <laughs> my dad was a dreamer. And so he would you know, take a flyer on something. And my mother was the more practical one. We have to, Kenny, we have to have money for the girl's shoes. You know, I, I would hear their conversation. So a lot of what I, I've learned, I learned by listening. I was in my bed and I could hear them talk. We didn't have such thick walls, but they did teach me about saving my grandpa was a really big saver and my grandpa came from the old country. So he didn't even barely speak English, but I would know that when my dad came home at night and he took his change out of his pocket and he put it into, he had a, like a little jar for charity and he would hit it into the jar and I could hear the coins. And I then I knew I could go to sleep because my dad was home safely. And then we hmm. would take the jar when it was full and we would decide which charity we were going to give it to. And so even when you don't have much and you, learn that it's okay to give it away. You have more than somebody else. There's somebody else that has less than you do. And so that was a really early lesson. We had every gadget you could possibly imagine. And I'm a gadget person. I'm like <laughs> my dad. It is like, it, it must be in the DNA. I love technology. I love new things. When I see things that are interesting for the computer or household makes life easier, you know, they never do, you know, you're usually yeah. wasting your money, but, but it just is it's fun for me. And I realized where I got it from. And my mother was, she never really was particularly organized. She was incredibly creative. So she was a sewer and she always had a million projects going on at the same time. And if you saw my desk, you would realize that that's similar to me. You know, there's things that you just, you could help them if you really wanted to, but you know, I sort of write it off too. It's in my genes. And as long as I know where <laughs> everything is, it's, it's a nuisance to others, but it's for me, it's not one of those things. So my dad was pretty neat. He had things pretty well organized, but he had those big dreams and wasn't always so practical. And my mom was, had a million ideas. Her dreams were different. But she was always doing a project, making something for someone else. She used to make all of our clothes. 
and she had a million projects going on. And when she passed away, I was only 21. And when she passed away, I, there were many projects that were in works that I still have in boxes. Yeah. I'm not going to do anything with them, but they're a reminder. Try to finish things, finish some things up because you never know what tomorrow's going to bring. Wow. So in terms of gadgetry, what is your favorite recent gadget? I don't know if there's favorite gadgets so much as there are these apps that you can use on your phone yeah. that get you to someplace really faster. I mean, as a retailer, I'm always looking at the way retailers use technology to make the customer experience better. And some people do it better than others. And some people have their websites good, but they're using that in store is really complicated. I don't think anybody has it really perfect. There is something I have to think about what that is because I'm constantly buying these little silly things on the internet. You know, when they come up and they show up and it says, oh, if you buy two, you get get another two for oh, yeah, free. Yeah. So that's 1-800-SUCKER. That's who I am. And I have a million <laughs> friends. So I come in in the morning and I leave on their desk what I bought for them. And yesterday I just saw this. I bought it for a friend because she's always in her car and she has a long drive home. I bought her this. It's a cup holder. And it sits yeah. inside your cup holder, but it expands out to hold like four more cups. I can't wait to get it. <laughs> she'll, she'll love it. And she laughs at me. It's just sort of part of our routine because she would absolutely never do that. She's very practical yeah, yeah. and I'm just, so that's a, the little things. But I would just say, I'm just always trying new things and yeah, you, like anything else you get, like my dad, I you get bored with it. But one of my very favorite gadgets that my dad did, and I'll send you one if you want me to, because um, I still have some, <laughs> a whole box of them, is that my dad had these little plastic keys. So it looks like a key and has a loop that you put on your key ring. But when you slide it, it's a, a little cuts it knife, you know, one of the, like a oh, box yeah, yeah, opener. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've even taken it on airplanes and never gotten caught, but I would be sad <laughs> if they took it away from me. But it's the coolest thing because you always need one. You yes. know, there's always something you have yes. to open up that you can't open up. And when we started Build-A-Bear, my dad sent me a big box and every single Build-A-Bear store had one or two of these in their store. You know, there were new boxes coming in. And so the store managers would put them on their key ring and they'd always have handy uh-huh. a and that's that's you couldn't leave them around on the desk because kids might pick them up. You had to be really careful. Everybody in every Build-A-Bear store had them. And then when my dad died, the man that sold them to him knew I loved him. And he sent me, I, I still have a big box of them here in my cabinet. Um, oh, wow. you know, said, oh, your dad ordered these and I have them for you. He ordered them for another supply and I know you love them. So here, I'm sending them to you. And they're the best thing. I mean, it's the simplest gadget, but it's one of the best things. That That is just great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I have two more questions. And, sure. and the first of the two is, I read a part of your book where you talk about your idol being Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Well, when I was growing up, every Sunday night, you know, there's a wonderful world of Disney and there was the Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah. And so for me, that was what was the imagination, was watching those shows, reading the stories. You know, they used to have the Hardy Boys and they had different stories. On, on a half an hour, maybe it was an hour show. I think it was a half an hour. They got a lot into a half an hour. There was no Disneyland yet. I mean, I was a little girl before Disneyland even opened. And then, and certainly before Disney World. But when they did open, boy, that was my dream to go there. And so it was just the perfect space to be in as a child when such happy stories told and, you know, animated not even yet color TV. We, if it was, if I was watching it on Jiminy Cricket on television, it wasn't in full color yet. Although we did have the first color TV because my dad was into the newest, latest gadgets. But just the being able to go to places, take your imagination to places you could never imagined on your own, and then you just take it from there. And I think that's really what Walt Disney tried to do was just inspire you to wish upon a dream, you know, and to think about what's possible. And it just added to my already fanciful childhood, my dad, who was a big dreamer, and my mother, who was incredibly creative, and my teachers, who 
showed me the world through books and learning. I didn't go to any of those places. I never was on an airport, an airplane until I went away to college. And I never was out of the United States until I went to work. So I, now kids go all these places that, you know, we didn't used to be able to go. We couldn't, we couldn't afford it, but we didn't know we couldn't afford it. It just wasn't where people went. You know, you'd get in your car and you'd go on a trip up in mid-state Florida and stay for a weekend and come back. I mean, that was the extent of family vacation. I wasn't deprived. I felt like I had yeah. a wonderful upbringing. And it, was, it takes a village to raise a child. And we say that all the time. It takes a village to raise a bear, build a bear. The village is a show like Walt Disney or Captain Kangaroo or later Mr. Rogers. All these things are part of what help children develop their full persona. It's not all good and it's not all bad. But at least in the days that, that I was starting out and television was available for children, it was all pretty darn good. Uh, and it was where you learned your ABCs and you learned about science. Captain Kangaroo had these science experiments. And now what you can see on television is so incredible to watch Nova or any of these shows that have so many amazing stories. And when I turn them on, I, I can't stop watching them because they're so incredible. And they can take you underwater and they can take you into a top of mountains, places you could never go. And there's nothing to stop children from being able to see the world if they have access to public television for sure. Well, one of the things that's so great about Disney is that he knew how to engage children on a level that nobody before him really understood. And I think that that's one of the things that's been great about you and Builder Bear is that you really figured that out. You really kind of honed in on something about kids and what they do. I love that you uh, have a – don't you have an advisory board filled with kids or something like that? We did when we started. We had a – our first board of directors was children um, because <laughs> I didn't I didn't need to have a board of directors. It was my own company. And kids yeah. were the ones that really had the most ideas and they really helped us decide on what we carried and some of our promotions. And we just had a great time with them. And then as we got bigger and we had to have a board of directors and took on investors and we still had our cub advisors, but now they're all growing up. They're like, I think the oldest one's like 32 or 33. So oh, wow. um, I think they would have stayed on forever, but they're married and not starting to have their own children. That was a while ago, but it was wonderful. And I'm, I would advise anybody who's in the business of any business, whatever your business is that you're starting or doing, you should have your customers as your first board of directors because they can help keep you on the straight and narrow. That's really great advice. I like that perspective. My final question is about charitable causes and what is the cause that you most love to give to or to promote? I really believe that all children, all families deserve access to information to make their lives all that it can be. And a lot of people think, well, it's there. Why don't they use it? Well, it might be there, but not everybody really has access. When you live in affluent neighborhoods, you know, everybody tells each other about this summer camp or the music teacher or the mm -hmm. perfect babysitter. But when you live in, in neighborhoods that aren't so affluent, often people don't even haven't been to a summer camp, so they can't even tell you what to advise. So we work in our family foundation on trying to create tools to give everyone access. It doesn't exclude anyone. It just includes everyone. There's lots of people that could use what you're doing, but if they don't know about it, they can't. And there's so much to know today. I mean, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by apps and tools, and it's more difficult to navigate than it ever was. And so that's what we work on in our family foundation. It's not any one charity, but if I did say that one thing I care the most about is in part of that access is public education. I had a K-12 and college education that was in public system and I had a great education. And I think it's the bulwark of our democracy. And as we see our democracy fading, I think part of that process is that we are not supporting public education the way we should. Teachers don't make enough money for the work that they do. Nowhere near it. They haven't kept anywhere at pace with any other industries whatsoever. And yet you need a four-year 
degree to be a teacher and you need a four-year degree to be an engineer and many other things. And yet engineers can make 135000 out of college and teachers can make 35000 So it's kind of backwards. And who's going to teach the future engineers? Who's going to teach the future doctors and scientists, if not our teachers, and they should be paid accordingly. So I have a big support in public education and making sure that we somehow, I mean, we're way far away from this, not just in, in Missouri or California, which has a teacher strike right now, but all over the place. And, and our competition around the world values teachers much higher than we do in America. And that's a big mistake because we're going to find ourselves without enough of them. We probably already don't have enough of them. Uh, teachers can retire relatively early usually around 55. And there's not enough teachers coming in because of college debt. That's another problem. If you graduate from college to be a teacher and you have $50,000 worth of debt and you graduate as an engineer and you make 135 with $50,000 worth of debt, it's a lot easier to pay it off than it is for a teacher. So I think it's like almost like public service. If you, if you go to teach, you should be able to for every year you teach, get your college education paid for. But we don't look at it like that. We don't look at the value of teachers to our society. It's somebody else's problem. It's somebody else's child. I'll send my kids to private school. And I think we've really abdicated our responsibility to public education and the d- democracy that that protects and what's entrusted to public schools because of the democratic process. So we're going to get what we ask for in this case if we don't stand up quickly. I mean, it's there's some really great schools and really great public education. I would say by and large, it doesn't matter where I go or where I'm, teach, public school teachers are undervalued. And early childhood education is undervalued. Those teachers make the least amount of money and they have the hardest job. So it just it, it's just backwards in our country. And I just don't know how we get our hands around it and, and start to say how we're going to really take this to the next level. What's the name of your foundation again? It's the Clark Fox Family Foundation. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Maxine, I really want to thank you for your stories. This has been some really wonderful thoughts. Oh, it's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for being so interested. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check the show notes at www.choosethenickel.com for links to names, books, and other resources we discussed in today's show. While you're there, subscribe to your newsletter. Also, please like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share with your friends. We appreciate your support.